I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. And today, outsourcing. Lots of companies do it because it's cheaper to get stuff done overseas where labor is cheaper. But isn't that damaging to the economy? Doesn't it take jobs away and create unemployment? Well, you might think so, but unemployment is pretty low everywhere right now. So does that mean we just create other stuff and it ultimately leads to more productivity? Or is it something we need to do something about, like President Trump is trying to do with tariffs and protection? That's this time on the Debunking Economics Podcast. So, Steve, most Western companies outsource their manufacturing overseas, often to China. So you've got companies like Apple and Nike. Walmart, apparently, uh, works with 10,000 different manufacturing plants in various parts of China. And why wouldn't they, of course? Because it's cheaper. So there's no downsides for the company in doing that. There's just downside for the economy. Yeah, this is something which I had actually analysed way, way back before I became an academic back in, I think it was, what, 1987 or something of that nature, 84, um, looking at the whole issue of the relocation of production because the, the, the fundamental outsourcing, there's two types of outsourcing. There's a company that says, we're really, we're, we're a, uh, a car company. Why do we have a computing wing? Let's outsource our computing functions to IBM and we'll just do the, the car manufacturing. Yeah. That's one sort of, the outsourcing you're talking about right now is relocating production, saying we're- yeah. Cheaper labor. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're, we're retailers. We're selling stuff to the public. We don't have to make it ourselves. We can make it overseas and bring it in more cheaply. And that was the the secret of China's industrialization from um, when, with, with, with the Gang of Four days, with 1989, uh, uh, You had the Gang of Four kicked out after Mao's death, uh, Deng Xiaoping back in power. The, 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 the cat philosophy, it doesn't matter what color a cat is, black or white, as long as it catches mice. Um, let's industrialize as fast as possible. And then going for export-oriented industrialization at the time when the Chinese workforce, I, I have no idea what the actual pay rates were, but it, it's something of the order of the, what was a pay, day, pay rate for an a, a, a American worker for a day would be a pay rate for a Chinese worker for a month. And there was such a huge cost advantage to American companies relocating their production to China and then exporting it back for sale in America. But masses and masses have did it, even though the Chinese required them. And this is a unique Chinese policy. Uh, no other developing country has done this. It required them to have a Chinese partner, regardless of the amount of capital they started. Within five years, the Chinese partner had to own half the business. Mm. Now, that to me gives you an idea of just how attractive the wage differential was yeah. for American corporations to agree to that anyway. Interesting now, Chinese companies, because they do you know, have a, a developing domestic economy as well, uh, and that domestic economy is, uh, is, you know, is demanding quality goods and, uh, you know, they're willing to pay for it. And But the companies making it for the domestic economy obviously want it to be as cheap as possible. So they're looking to, company, to, to countries like uh, Vietnam and Bangladesh and Botswana and Ethiopia and the Philippines. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, as China's domestic economy grows, uh, they are starting to outsource themselves as well. And so it goes on. 
Yeah, um, but there's a bit of a limit that the, 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 the Chinese Communist Party won't let go as far as the American uh, the political scene has, and that is you don't want the Chinese to revolt mm. uh, because, I mean, I, I, have, uh, I was in China in 81, 82, one of the uh, very informative experiences in my life uh, when I took a bunch of journalists there for a conference with the Chinese journalists. But as part of it, we happened to be in China uh, during the finals of the women's volleyball competition. And the uh, final was won by China against Japan. And there was an edict from the Communist Party saying, do not demonstrate in Tiananmen Square. Well, the journalists that I was with knew that they'd ignore that. And we went down there and saw roughly, I think, about a, about a million people on bicycles uh, celebrating and letting off crackers and so on in Tiananmen Square. Now, that's the positive side of a demo. Mm. Uh, the negative side was there were so many strikes and demonstrations and revolts during the financial crisis because Chinese exports fell by something like 40%. And the, the impact of this was, first of all, people, factories would downsize as they do anywhere else in the world. But in China, when you lost your job, you were normally un unable to get social security instead because you're registered. This is a bit of a hangover in the communist days. You're registered in your place of birth. It's very hard to change it, which would be some province in the, in the west of the country. So something in the order of 50 million Chinese found themselves hopping on trains to go back to the countryside that less 10 or 20 years earlier. They weren't happy and the demonstrations went through the roof. And that's a major reason why the Chinese stimulus was so big. Now, uh, extrapolating a bit forward, if there's a scale of relocation of production, that means you start getting unemployed Chinese workers then I expect demonstrations to come along uh, that the Communist Party will respond to, whereas in America they couldn't give a rat's ass about what the working class thinks, and that's why you ultimately get the working class voting for Trump uh, because the, the policy of relocation of production goes on regardless of their, the, uh, the opinions of American workers. And because there are so many Chinese workers, uh, you know, uh, this idea of, of low-cost labour is going to carry on forever, isn't it? So even if you have hot spots within China, I think this is starting to happen as well. You know, some, um, some places are getting more expensive, so they are moving production facilities inland to other places where the labour is cheaper. And so, mm. you know, and you can do that, goodness knows, you know, hundreds of times over because there's a so many places in China, such a big population, we're never going to run short of, of uh, low-cost labour in that part of the world. No, I think um, they've certainly done a huge amount of absorbing it. I mean, they really are. Australia is the, the manufacturing hub for the planet these days, outside of countries like Germany that hung under their own manufacturing as well. Uh, but, yeah, uh, and then Japan. But so they, they have played a massive role, and it is having an impact. There are, you know, wages have risen in general, not just for manufacturing workers. Uh, I've, I've been to China a few times. I've been to quite a few towns in China. And when you look at the standard of living that people are enjoying there, um, it doesn't feel too different to a middle-class American town. Mm. In fact, it feels a lot better frequently because you don't see as many many homeless. Mm. Um, Unless so you're shot. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I, there, are, there are political sects and religions you shouldn't belong to in China for your own health. Yes, yeah, so I, I, do, I do take that point. But the, the level of prosperity is quite, quite high. I think it's understated by... Uh, if you look at the comparison in terms of renminbi or yuan to the American dollar, it looks like the Chinese aren't anywhere near as well. If I think they certainly the the average Chinese uh, in in the in the third and third tier and above towns is doing pretty well, except those working in some of the sweatshops. So complicated answer, but I think that the, 
it, it's not as possible to do that relocation within China anymore. And that's why a lot of Chinese companies are outsourcing. Right. I'm seeing Bangladesh turning up on, on plenty of the clothing labels I see these days and, and equally Vietnam. So what about the impact then on Western countries that are outsourcing so heavily? I mean, uh, for example, what does it mean for innovation? If we simply use cheap human labour, it's a bit of a one-way process then, isn't it? Because we won't, for example, get new ideas coming from the workforce if they work in sweatshops and they they don't speak our lingo. We're just going to keep on doing what we've done before, uh, trying to lower costs as much as possible. It's not moving things forward too much. Well, that, this is actually an interesting point because if you look at what, what what led to the Industrial Revolution occurring in Scotland rather than anywhere else in the world, and it was specifically Scotland rather than um, rather than the whole of the UK, um, it, it looks like a major factor was the high level of wages uh, compared to France. Now, the, the difference, you know, because France was the other major power at the time of the Industrial Revolution, and if you if you look at the scale of wages in textile manufacturing in France versus wages in textile manufacturing in Scotland. There was a substantial difference and not quite as big as America versus China, but it was something like wages were two or three times higher in Scotland than they were in, in France. Right. When, when you do, I've forgotten the academic. So more, more incentive to replace that expensive labor with machinery then. Yeah. Exactly. And right. that's what happened. And the spinning jenny meant you went from, I think the original spinning jenny, which is, you know, it's a flywheel that, that lets you attach six, um, you know, um, spinners, spinning wheels, uh, which was powered by one worker rather than one worker per spinning wheel. Uh, the cost of designing it, the cost of, of you know, with sale level, uh, was not profitable if you were French mm. because because you, you were displacing cheap labour. But it was profitable if you're displacing Scottish labour. So part of the reason why innovation occurs is actually wages being high. Right. And that's that's the one of the reasons you can use an argument against the proposition that you often see that we should, you know, but is that, Well, yeah, but I mean, the, 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 this day and age, you know, with, with transport being uh, much more readily available, in those days they probably wouldn't have invented it. They would have just gone, well, okay, let's get the French to do it because they're cheaper. Yeah, if they could actually do the transportation. Now we can do the transportation. So in mm. that sense, it probably has been a reason that there's been less innovation because you're using cheap labour. But cheap labour is expensive in various ways as well. This is one thing which uh, a lot of factories have found out to their cost. And just a little anecdote here, I, I bumped into a guy in my travels who um, is works in RFID chips. That's a manufacturer of you know, the chips which are used for uh, you know in, 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 on store tabs and you know, warehousing and so on to indicate where a particular items are. And um, he said the machine they make, I think, needs nine workers to produce 14 million RFID chips per year. In China, they've got 15 workers producing 6 million. He said he has no idea what the extra workers do and no idea whether productivity is lower. Mm. But, in fact, you don't get the same productivity out of out of uh, unskilled labour um, in one country versus in another. Uh, it, so there are costs involved. And... And a lot of firms have found this as well. They've got a longer supply chain that they'd like to have. Now, of course, Trump's coming in and disrupting the supply chain by whacking tariffs left, right, and centre. Yeah. So this. So is is it, will that work? Do you think? I mean, I, I mean, has has Donald Trump got a point that China is behaving unfairly, and um, you know, it's because it is keeping those production costs lower, uh, and and you know, and is he going the right way about it? Are tariffs the answer? 
Well, I think I think a conflict might be part of the answer. But what he's got what he's got wrong, of course, is that one of the reasons why he's uncompetitive is the bloody American dollar being the reserve currency. Mm. If they're willing to surrender that, which of course they're not willing to do, then the price differential between American and Chinese goods would potentially halve because the American dollar is that massively overvalued by its reserve currency status. So he's not that. That's that's what I'd do. Well, but it's not I, just the U.S. I mean, you know, everyone is outsourcing to China. I mean, we don't make we don't make clothes in Britain anymore, do we? They're all made in China or Taiwan. Yeah, yeah. Um, and th- this, this is the whole globalization thing. The fact that transporting is, is cheap. Transport plus low, low cost labor is much cheaper than doing it domestically. But again, it gives you a very lengthy supply chain. Things can go wrong. So uh, even, even though. But that's, that's the price uh, you pay. You're still, you're still up, you know, up at the end of it all, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. But then in terms of what you do for future industrialization, now that uh, with, the, with the developments in, in you know, what I call low level AI, uh, so not not AI that actually can um, solve a math- mathematical problem for you, but AI that uh, can uh, you know run a run a machine rather than having a human controlling the machine. Um, that sort of AI plus three D plus three D printing or additive as they call additive manufacturing, mm. as it's called. All these sorts of things are meaning you don't even need the labour in the first place anymore. So why not locate the machine domestically rather than internationally? So that is bad news for countries like China and all these other developing nations that are relying basically on, on low labour costs because there's not going to be the demand for them. So what, what's going to happen to them? I think that, that, I think the days of the strategy are numbered in that sense. And we're starting to see that in like it, it's, it's mainly hitting industries which are like the low-hanging fruit of 3D printing. And one of those is clearly construction because 3D constructing device uh, can quite feasibly build an entire building 10, 20 times faster than you can do with human labour So, uh, as, as that technology is perfected. But it will ultimately go through to a whole range of other areas as well. And like, for example, in, in, um, if you're looking at building the chassis of, of machines and, and bodies uh, of, of, of vehicles, uh, the need for assembly uh, can be large parts of it can be reduced, not dispensed with completely, but substantially reduced. And then you've got a shorter production line. You've got more control over over the design than you had. Uh, more control over fall, over flaws in manufacturing. So I think that the. The, the, the days of this massive advantage of relocating production to a third world country and exporting back, I think they're numbered. Well, we've had car assembly plants, you know, sort of automated for a long time, and yet we still have a lot of people sitting in uh, in derelict offices in China putting iPhones together manually. Yeah, yeah, and that's... that's surprised the, it's not, I'm surprised that's still happening. Yeah, and that's... Well, it's, it's, it's amazing what, what is, nece- what is uh, advantageous to industrialise versus what isn't. Uh, I know uh, a piece I wrote on um, on this issue on, on the whole role of energy in production. Uh, one little example I used was from a New York Times article about a production facility in America making air conditioning units. And one of the jobs of one of the workers there was to insert, insert like a, what looked like a pair of tweezers, which is basically a thermostat unit, into the machines a thousand or two thousand or three thousand times a day. Now it wasn't worth the because it's such a specialised task. It wasn't worth the company's while to design a machine to take her place, simply inserting this thing in a particular hole in each of the air conditioning units. Mm. So that sort of thing can apply with low wages. Uh, with higher wages, well, you better make that machine 
and you then you know, develop with once you get uh, fossil energy or solar energy involved in, in something, it doesn't have the limitations the human energy has. It won't get tired. You can do it much faster. Right. As you develop, and that's what happened with the spinning but jenny that, as well, of course. That, that human being still exists, of course, so that human being is still using up the same amount of energy whether or not they've got a job or not. And that becomes a dilemma. We've, we've got an income distribution issue coming out of this because uh, over the next 30 years, if depending on how human society survives in the next 30 years, but over the next 30 years, I think we'll see enough development in technology that the role of humanity in actually producing any physical output will fall virtually to, virtually to zero. And in terms of what's feasible, not necessarily what actually happens in terms of investment, but you are not going to need human labour. Uh, the, the production line will be a thing of the past in terms of workers on the production line. What you'll have is workers whose job it is to maintain the production line, but the production line being entirely automated. Right now, where we are right now, where we are seeing a lot of uh, outsourcing, what's that having on domestic wages, on the country that's doing the outsourcing? I'd I'd assume it would be part of why we're seeing uh, wages being kept low, because, you know, you'd be worried about going to your boss and asking for an increase if if you've got this fear that if you ask for a job increase, your job's going to disappear overseas. And I'm wondering whether that's what we're seeing now, and that's why inflation is so low and taking so long to pick up. Yeah, I think that's a major factor. And like when I did this analysis back in the um, early 1980s, I think it was, I used Joan Robinson's framework we call the, what he called the golden age capitalist economy, making up a picture of, of, of two economies that are both growing at, uh, at very stable rates over time. And then you enable, and you have one country, which is a, like a country like Australia, which is a importer of everything. Uh, you know, exports raw materials, but imports its manufacturing. Another being a production base like America, producing everything, and then having China come along with as a low wage area. What happens when you relocate production from the from the America to China? Um, well, what happens is, of course, is the wages go down in America, the wages rise in China, but by nowhere near as much. You get an increase in profit in China, an increase in profit in America as well, because you're now paying far less wages costs for your production. Uh, but what you've done is reduced, reduced aggregate demand because you're selling those goods back into a population where there are now less workers because you've sacked some of them and they're now living on social security rather than wages, then your aggregate demand will fall. Mm. And the same thing, so you do get, uh, this does have an impact on aggregate demand. And and, and, and yeah, well, look, at, look at the number of people who are now working in the United States, supposedly at an all-time high. Yep, and that's partly because, again, the government spending stimulus coming in plus QE. But I see QE as having had far more of a role over time, just the sheer scale of it, because every year a trillion dollars worth of uh, central bank created money going into the financial sector, possibly about 100 to 200 billion of that washing out into the into the real economy, mm. uh, that's a fairly substantial stimulus over time. And when they try to withdraw it, the stock market crashes and they start going the opposite direction on uh, on QE once more. <laughs> and we're, so, consum- uh, and we're, we're consuming more than we would before. So we're, we're, stuff is cheaper because it's outsourced overseas and companies are making a healthy profit but still selling less. Uh, and so we're able to buy more. So our consumption goes up, which is not necessarily good for the planet. Mm, yeah. So, um, I mean, it, it, we are in a, one hell of a mess right now, but certainly I think outsourcing has been a, a major factor, first of all, in the development of a country like China, the, and, and then also in deindustrialization in America and the swing to the right in America, because being abandoned by the Democrats who went for, you know, in identity politics instead of worrying about the working class, uh, because the working class are being screwed by people who'd vote Republican, the Koch brothers and so on, um, 
uh, they, the workers themselves start voting Republican because they think they're being ignored by the Democrats. So uh, we've produced a, a hell of a mess now in the job when, when the wage and the cost advantages have declined so much because of the increase in wages in China and because of you know, additive manufacturing, the, the, the work might well move back onshore again, but the jobs will not. Well, will they? I mean, if China becomes too expensive, as I said before, there's Bang- you know, those places that China is looking at for, for cheaper labour. So you've got Bangladesh, Botswana, Ethiopia, the Philippines. You know, there's, there's no shortage of places where you can turn to for, for low-cost labour. Yeah, I know that they certainly were saying that China is doing that as well. So, but but I think the the overall thrust of, of manufacturing over the next thirty years is going to be reducing the role of labour so substantially that those cost advantages are going to be outweighed by the unreliability of the supply chain that comes out of it, the length of the supply chain. Mm. So companies that decide to relocate and and produce domestically with additive additive manufacturing plus AI controlled machinery. Uh, they're likely to get an advantage. Certainly, they're going to be able to move faster than their rivals who rely upon the outsourcing. So here's a question that's been asked, I think, many times. In fact, I remember my dad asking this question about 30 years ago when he was moaning about the fact that Britain doesn't make anything anymore. And, you know, if we are outsourcing everything, if uh, most production jobs are going overseas, other than, as you say, through QE, how is an economy creating money? It's getting it from services, like, you know, from education and finance and, he- and health, which is sort of all there to service a population, but there's nothing physically being created. Does that actually matter? I think it does because this comes down to what, we, what does economy actually do? And this is my energy perspective here gives me a different orientation. And that is that what we're doing and fundamentally is converting energy into useful work. Now, the percentage of the population that's needed to do that has been plunging over time. So most of us are involved in what David Graeber quite rightly calls bullshit jobs. Yeah. Um, and often those bullshit jobs reflect the hierarchy that we're part of because the more people doing bullshit work for you, the higher your status. And as another brilliant um, <laughs> this, uh, uh, academic I know through Blair Fix, who was one of the examiners on his PhD thesis, he said the only thing that explains income and wage distribution, not just in capitalist societies but going right back through time as well, is hierarchy. The bigger the hierarchy you sit on top of, the more you get paid. So a lot of these jobs are being created not because it's sufficient to have flunkies doing useless work for you, because flunkies doing useless work for you make you look important and justify your huge salary. So um, it, mm. it, it, is a, it is a mess and a half, but it works so long as we're still generating a net surplus, not, not a net, I mean, that's a term I'm rather leery about using right now, but so long as we're getting more energy out of the um, global system than we're putting in to retrieve that energy and turning it into goods and services. Now, our danger is we're approaching a crunch point on that front. We can't continue doing that. Yeah. You know, I wrote a book 10 years ago, which I wouldn't recommend anyone reads, called The Incumbent, which was all about how the government was basically putting all these unemployed people into a, into a very large telco where they thought nobody would notice. Uh, and it was all going fine until someone got in charge of the telco and actually tried to make it efficient. And, uh, you know, everyone was going, no, no, don't do that. And they decided the only way to solve the problem was to kill him. Uh, so, 
But, you know, it's uh, you know a story of our times. I still wouldn't recommend uh, reading it. Uh, so, look, if th- just how sustainable is all of this, then, I wonder? And, and what can a government do about it all? Because, I mean, if they tell companies that they need to push their costs up by employing local people and the companies are going to say, well, this is going to make us internationally competitive, we're not going to do that. Uh, you know, we want to carry on doing what we're doing. Okay, maybe artificial intelligence and the ability to uh, – an automation is going to, you know, mean that some of these jobs can be replaced, but that doesn't give people jobs, does it? It just means it you you uh, getting rid of the outsourcing. You're just uh, recruiting machines locally. The problem is not going to go away, is it, until every country in the world has a parity on wages, and obviously that is not going to ever happen. No, I mean, that's one of the, the parts of neoclassical theory. They thought that parity would apply, but it, uh, the differentials are still there because, hey, the real world has additional costs you like to ignore in your model. Um but, yeah, I think that to me the ultimate direction we're going in is one in which workers are no longer necessary for production and, therefore, the way in which workers can currently blackmail, and that's what it really is, uh, blackmail the owners of machines to get a, a, a salary that means they can live comfortably, is saying, unless you pay me, I won't press the button to turn that machine on. Now, when, when a machine can press the button to turn the machine on, that particular bargaining power goes out the window. Right, but who presses the button on the machine that turns you- that button on? You get a tiny, tiny, tiny number who can, who, uh, you know. You've got one person who t- presses the button that turns all the country's machines on. Yeah, fundamentally. And, mm. and, um, and I, like, I, I, I know in terms of, like, for example, for two Pro, buttons. I, one to start the machines, one to start a nuclear war. Just make sure you, <laughs> your job is to make sure you press the right the button. The right one. But I know, like, I, I won't mention the company, but uh, one of my colleagues worked in a firm where the management was trained in the use of the machinery. And the, in the case of a strike that occurred, they could instantly take over, not quite instantly, but fairly rapidly take over the machinery. The clerical workers became manufacturing workers and no fall in production occurred, which just completely stimmied the power of the workers to go on strike and demand wage rises. Now, you, that, that's going back 20 years. If you fast forward 20 years from now, then the bargaining power is completely gone. So if you're relying upon employment as the basis of the political power of the midst of the people to get a, a decent share of the uh, of the energy we're converting into useful work on the planet, then it's going to fail. Mm. So I think the, to me that's why ultimately I'm a fan. I, I know there are people complaining about universal basic income being a, a way of reducing incomes and anti-working class, et cetera, et cetera. I think inevitably it's the only way that we're going to get a, a decent standard of living for the majority of people uh, who don't own the machinery is to have a universal basic income and then enable innovation to still occur uh, for those who want to get themselves a large profit. So short term, though, because that's sort of like a hopefully it's a midterm answer. But short term right now where we've got lots of companies outsourcing and people without jobs uh, as as a result of that, what what can we do short term? Do we need to do anything short term? And then sort of like another form of outsourcing is actually where you bring that cheap labor from overseas into your country and bring that uh, bring it onshore, particularly for semi-skilled jobs like the uh, H-1B visa program in America. And of course, the, the 457 visas that keeps the, the mining industry going in Australia. Should we allow that sort of thing to happen or should we say no? Hell no. For these jobs, we've got to find local workers. Yeah, and I think I would ultimately go for that that basis, saying you 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 uh, you want to you know get the the benefit of work in your country, going to workers in your country, and the same for profits, the same for investment. I'm very much a critic of letting capital relocate and and letting labour relocate 
for, to get cheap wages to work in a in a in a developed in a, in a in a wealthy economy. It's unhealthy for everybody. You look at what actually happens to the conditions that workers get in that area. A lot of very dreadful stuff occurs. So I would like to have those limitations. Funnily enough, they're part of neoclassical theory as well. Because if you look at the the way in which neoclassical explain where gains of trade come from, in their in their mythical model of comparative advantage, mm. one of the essential assumptions there is that labour and capital are completely mobile within countries and completely immobile between countries. If they're allowed to be mobile between countries, they can no longer conclude that a rise in profits in one country benefits the residents of that country. Yeah, it destroys the whole competitive theory of advantage, doesn't it? It does, and that's why they assume it doesn't happen. But, of course, it mm. does happen. So what that then again means is you know, increasing wages in, 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 um, <laughs> in profits in, in, in China aren't necessarily good for Chinese capitalists if it's, in fact, they're going to American capitalists. Of course, it applies much more to Australia where we've, a huge part of our capital stock's been sold off to overseas companies. An increase in the profit rate in Australia does not mean an increase in the welfare of Australians because most of that profit goes overseas. So you're basically what you're saying is the argument for free trade goes against the, the argument for freedom of movement of labour and capital. Yeah, and that's not acknowledged by the neoclassicals, of mm. course, but it's part of reality. Mm. Love that point to finish on. Great to talk as always, Steve. We'll catch you again soon. Okay. And that's it for this time. We'll have another Debunking Economics podcast for you next week. Thanks for listening. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.